You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Okay, so this uh, session is a question and answer, and our question and answer session on Friday night is intended for you to get to know Scott a little bit. So I'm going to ask him some personal questions about life and ministry and how he got involved in this. So first, Scott, can you give us your testimony, how it is that the Lord saved you? I was raised Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists deny fundamental truths of the Christian faith. Uh, they are very good people in terms of medical profession. They run uh, health care systems through their hospitals. Um, they do a lot of good things. Uh, I certainly learned the Bible there. But Adventists were wrong on the doctrine of justification, and I figured that out in high school when a speaker came to the Adventist Academy that I attended who had been influenced by a guy by the name of Desmond Ford, an Adventist theologian who had it right and was trying to correct the denomination. And this speaker laid out the gospel. He talked about sin. He talked about atonement. He talked about how we can do nothing to make ourselves right with God, that God has to make us alive spiritually. I mean, he brought it. And I heard that. I had heard nothing like that ever. And so in my sophomore year at that uh, what we called our week of prayer conference, uh, I became a Christian. Now, was I a Christian who knew all the right doctrine at that point? No. But Greg Kokel's right. Jesus first catches his fish, then he cleans them. And that sanctification process goes on for a lifetime. But that was the first time I really heard the gospel, and the first time I heard it it, it it resonated. You know, one thing great about being raised in a legalistic denomination, when you hear grace, I'm telling you, uh, it grabs. And and we get it. You know, if you're raised in a legalistic denomination and you were just taught law, 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 you get that you're fallen. You get that you're a sinner. In today's culture, one of the things we have is we first have to get people lost before we can get them saved because they think they're all okay. Uh, I didn't have that problem. I knew I was definitely uh, under the wrath of God. And so when I heard the gospel, it it changed me. And um, uh, within two years, I had left the Adventist church, and I wandered across the street to a, a very small church of 10,000 people um, where I just happened to meet that lovely lady at the back table uh, in the college career group of 500 students. So that's that's how uh, my uh, testimony, I guess, the, the rough contours of it. Uh, growing up in a Seventh-day Adventist church, are your parents still Seventh-day Adventists? No, they're not. They leave they, it as well? They left as well, yeah. No one in our family is, is still Adventist. <coughs> you went across the street to a, a small church of 10,000 people. What was the name of that church? Who was the pastor? The Church on the Way, pastored by a guy by the name of Jack Hayford. And... Um, so from a Seventh-day Adventist background into a, a charismatic... a charismatic background where I meet my wife and um, I was there on staff uh, in their bookstore and as a pastoral staff intern and then I was an associate minister in that denomination for a while. So tell us and, the next step before some people come up here and grab you and drag you out and uh, stone you. Yes, I'll just prophesy over all of you. Uh, <laughs> 
Um, over time, um, I began reading people like R.C. Sproul and others of the Reformed tradition, and uh, over time began drifting toward that, or shall we say was drawn toward that. You know, when people say, are you a Calvinist? I say, yes, but I can't help it. And um, uh, it's late. I got to keep you awake, right? Um, but began to be convinced that God had to be sovereign in sal- salvation. And look, both sides have problems. I get that. Our theology is not infallible. The Bible's infallible. But it seems to me it's very hard to deny in Scripture that God is the author and finisher of our faith, and he is the one who uh, saves us. We're dead spiritually, and I became convinced of that. So uh, we, we, before we left California, we actually uh, attended uh, Grace Community Church, uh, John MacArthur's church. So follow my progression, Adventist, charismatic, Grace Community. And tomorrow I'm converting to Catholic. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. All right. I first heard of you when you worked at Standerese with yeah. Greg Kokel. How did you get tied in with uh, Greg Kokel's ministry? I was working at the time for a pro-life group called the Center for Bioethical Reform that produced the video you saw tonight. And <laughs> CBR is, is led by Greg Cunningham, former Pennsylvania House of Representative member, Reagan Department, uh, Justice Department official. And he got me into this work. He was the guy that... Uh, uh, got me into it. But the way I got tied in, and I'm assuming that question's coming up, so I won't... No, uh, tell, tell us. To, okay. I was an associate minister at that Foursquare Church in Southern California that uh, I mentioned, and uh, I'd always been pro-life, but really wasn't all that involved. I cared about the issue, even taught a small class on it at one point, very small class, uh, but I taught it. I cared about the issue. I'd done a fair amount of reading on the issue, but I wasn't actively doing a lot on it. Well, I got invited by the local pregnancy center director who bugged me and bugged me, and she would not take no for an answer. She said, I want you to come hear this speaker who's going to talk. And I went expecting that given it was a pastor's event, there'd be at least, you know, a, a, a room full of us. Because uh, when we did pastor's breakfast in Southern California, they were full. Guys like to eat, you know. I thought, okay, this will be good. Me and four other guys and their wives were at this event. And the speaker, Greg Cunningham, laid out a case for the pro-life view. And I thought, this is impressive. He's intelligent. He doesn't hurt the brain to listen to. And I had heard pro-lifers who did hurt the brain to listen to, quite frankly. And this guy was different. But then he did something that totally changed my life. That video I showed you that was 55 seconds, he showed an eight-minute version of footage like that. And I sat there and thought, I am no different than the priest and the Levite who passed by on the other side of the road. I say I care about this, but I'm not acting like I care about it. So bottom line, uh, with the the blessing of my dear wife over time, six months later, uh, I left that job. And wouldn't it just be God and his sovereignty, who also made it uh, difficult for me to stay at the church because of financial situations. So on one hand, I was already thinking I'd love to go out and do this, and then I got forced out. And so for the last 30 years, I've been basically working to train pro-lifers how to make a case for the pro-life view. So you went and worked for that guy who showed you that video. Video. And then for uh, five years, and then Greg Kokel, you started hearing him on the radio in the early 90s. 
And I thought, I really like this guy. He's got theology. He's got apologetics. He's, uh, and I found out that he too was of the same denomination I was. We were both Foursquare at the time. Uh, we're not now, but we were then. And I thought, man, he, he's doing apologetics. He's doing a uh, worldview. And I, I heard him give a talk on, on pro-life over the radio. And I thought, I need to meet up with this guy. So I, I called his office and said, let's meet for lunch. He had heard of me. So we met for lunch and uh, we talked and had a great, a great conversation. And then about six months later, I was determined I wanted to break out on my own and start a pro-life organization where I could target students more effectively. And Greg Kokel got wind of it. He called me up and said, don't start your own organization. Come work with us at Stand to Reason and uh, we'll start a pro-life uh, aspect of our organization. So that's what I did. And I worked at STR for, I think it was almost seven years and then started LTI in 2004. And leaving STR was not because of any beef between Greg and I. It's just that STR is a Protestant reformed Christian apologetics organization that sometimes made it tough for me to get into Catholic high schools to do pro-life presentations. And so to cast that wider net to get into these Catholic uh, organizations as well as the Protestant ones, uh, we started LTI to be an exclusively pro-life apologetics organization. So that's so how. So as a speaker with LTI or the director of LTI, you were invited into Catholic and Protestant high schools and colleges as well? Yes. And how do you handle going in? So you're obviously Reformed. Mm-hmm. You're obviously Protestant. Do you yep. wear that on your sleeve when you go into a Catholic environment? What is your approach? I got a Calvin hat that I wear and a mask and no. Um, here's what we do. Uh, we have five speakers who work with LTI. Last year, we reached 72,000 students, primarily in Catholic high schools. Uh, we go into these Catholic high schools, and we tell the students we're not Catholic. Guess what happens when they hear we're not Catholic? They automatically listen more attentively. And we say, we're not Catholic. We differ from you theologically, but we're going to argue why the church teaching on abortion is reasonable to believe. And we're going to give you a case for the pro-life view you can use outside of your church relationships. The faculty love it. The students love it. Oh, and by the way, that gospel presentation you heard before I showed that video, they hear that exact same thing in every Catholic high school. Now, we do not stand up and say, uh, you know, we think your religion is is wrong. Uh, We just get the gospel out there. But we make it clear that we are not Catholic, and the schools actually like it that we do that. And one thing great about the Catholic uh, tradition, their students have had some instruction in moral theology, as they call it, and they actually understand the, the art of moral reasoning at a pretty good level, a lot of these students, and we can work with them and train them and equip them to reach other students uh, with the truth of the pro-life position, and that that's what we do. So um, 72,000 students last year, and uh, we're not going to hit that number this year, but next year we might we might hit it again. So this presentation that you gave to us just previously, is that the one that you give when you have one shot in a Catholic high school or an auditorium? You're not, you're not able to do the entire bioethics right. thing that you're doing with us over today and tomorrow. Is that the shot that you give them? 
You, what you heard tonight is, is a variation of what they would hear, but of course we mix in a lot more energy and, and, you know, a little more humor and, and we tweak it a little bit for those students, but they're getting essentially the scientific case that you got, the philosophic case that you got, and we give them instructions on handling some of the objections, which you'll hear tomorrow. That's what we do. And what we typically would do is do a 45-minute chapel or assembly. Sometimes we've got 1,700 students in the, the bleachers. Sometimes we've got 700. It just it varies. But then our speakers almost always will stay and go in the classrooms, and we will answer questions from the students. They can ask us anything we want, and, and we answer their questions. And the, their number one response is, we have never heard anything like this before. And I liken it this way. The pro-life movement has been shouting conclusions to these students rather than establishing facts. And that's why we're losing. So we go in and give them the arguments. We give them the case. And in the process, we're able to share gospel as well. And I'll take that deal. Uh, to me, that, that's a deal I'm willing to take. Uh, you live in Atlanta, Georgia. What church do you attend? First Baptist Noonan. It's an SBC church. So I'm a Calvinist hiding out in an SBC church. Given your ministry schedule, how often do you get to be at your home church? Depends on the time of year. Uh, in the fall, this is my compact season. In uh, seven weeks' time, I do about 60% of the work I'm going to do for the year. That's just how it works out with pregnancy center banquets and the like. So uh, normally it would not be this busy, but... I've missed the last two Sundays at church, but I was there the last three, uh, even in the middle of the busy season. So at times I will miss. Uh, I used to teach Sunday school at my church with a federal judge that is a friend of mine, and uh, I just had to give that up. I could not maintain uh, the the rigors of preparing lessons and being out on the road. It just was too taxing on me to continue. So now and then I will teach. Uh, we're part of the class, Stephanie and I are part of a Sunday school class as well as part of a, a church that we've now been members at for, this will be our 14th year coming up. So, And uh, how do you serve in your local church other than teaching anyways? Our local church has a ministry to Chinese students. And this is going to sound very, uh, very simple. I drive Chinese students from time to time to go play basketball. We have a flight academy near us that Chinese students come over, and these students are put in apartment complexes, and they have no one that they know. They're here to go to flight school. And our church has decided we're going to evangelize these guys. So we pick them up on Sunday afternoon, and we'll drive them to go play basketball and then drive them back home. And uh, we even have events where we will invite them to come to our class events. We have now had two of those young men profess Christ and be water baptized. Uh, so that's an exciting thing to see. Another thing I did is I started a small group for students struggling with their faith in the church. And there was one young man in particular that was the son of a uh, couple in our Sunday school class, and he was a declared atheist as a sophomore in high school. And I thought, you know what? I would love to just try to engage some of these students if I could. And so I set up in the local coffee shop, which is just across the street from our church, 
Alex and I and a, one of his friends uh, would meet, and my, primarily it would be Alex, and we would talk about what are the obstacles to believing in Jesus. And we talked about the problem of evil. We talked about, you know, why why would God create people that are destined for wrath? We talked about the problem of cultures disagreeing. I mean, we went through all kinds of stuff. And quite frankly, I thought it was going nowhere. It felt like it was going nowhere. So we did it for, I don't know, maybe four to five months. And uh, Alex said, yeah, I think maybe we should take a break. Well, lo and behold, uh, four months ago, Alex's parents come up to me at church and said, Alex is now a Christian. Whoa, what happened there? Well, he had started attending a church with a friend, not our church. He f- found some other one. He he really resented his parents making him go to church, and so he started going to this other church, and he became a believer. God found him, and it turned out all that stuff I had talked to him about that I thought was just falling on deaf ears, it actually got in. So when you talk to people, when you think about that pebble in the shoe, uh, that's what I'm talking about. You don't know how God's going to use that. You don't know. So don't grow discouraged that you're not seeing results right on the spot. So that's one of the ways we're involved. So I thought that being a Calvinist, you don't believe in evangelism. What are you doing out evangelizing? Well, that's what I hear anyway. Yeah, but I don't know who the elect are. So (laughs) how did you meet your wife? Tell us a story about that. Well, I better get this one right. She's in the back there. Um, At that church that I wandered across the street to of 10,000 people, our college pastor, Daniel Brown, was in the middle of a lesson to about 400 collegians. And in the middle of whatever he was preaching on that day, I don't even, couldn't tell you what it was. He looked up from his text and he looks around the room And he said, I don't know half of you, and I'm going to guess that you don't know each other. This class has grown. I don't know you. Uh, I'd like you to take uh, a few minutes and go find somebody you've never met and go say hello. So I looked to my right, and I saw this uh, creation of God to my immediate right, and I decided I needed to go talk to that creation of God. Uh, and I looked and I saw her and I said, I'm going to go chat. So I went over and I introduced myself and to make sure I didn't forget her name, I wrote her name down. (laughs) And, um, four days later was the annual retreat to Solvang, California, where all the collegians go to, uh, have their, their, uh, labor or Memorial Day break and, 400 of us from the church would descend on that town, and I asked her, are you going? Yes. So I spent the weekend uh, hanging out with her, playing tennis, and I spent almost a year pursuing her before uh, she had a change of heart and decided that maybe I wasn't so bad after all. Uh, And anyway, we've been married now 34 years, and she's had to put up with a lot more from me, I'm sure, than I ever have from her. So this this was the greatest gift of God to me. What are your non-ministry interests? And I um, guess that would include some of your theological interests as well as, I mean, you you obviously are familiar with uh, not only pro-life apologetics, but also yeah. presuppositional apologetics and theology. Yeah. What, are, what are your non-ministry interests, non-pro-life ministry interests? Yeah, um, cert- certainly philosophy uh, at the intellectual side. Um, 
I do take an interest in apologetics. And as Christians, I find that, or as a Christian, I find that each of the major models contributes something. The precept contributes something. Uh, you can see that if you've ever watched a debate from the late Greg Bonson, for example. Uh, evidentialists contribute something. Classical apologetists contribute something. Uh, I say that because there's a tendency for some people to think it's one way or, or no way. Uh, the truth is we can learn from all of those traditions and use them in the appropriate setting depending on who we're talking to. So there are settings where a presuppositional approach would be, would be good. Go ahead and work with the assumption the Bible is true, present that to the person you're talking to, and, and go for it. There are other times where I'm going to establish some common ground with some evidential approach, moving them toward the truth of Scripture. Um, you can do both. You don't have to pick one or the other. The other hobby I have, uh, I'm a bit of a car guy. Uh, I have a 66 Ford Mustang, and um, I do enjoy that that car. And when I need to unwind, I go out and, I don't know, yank a water pump, yank a radiator, <laughs> try to figure out why the tranny's leaking. I don't know. But it's a 66. It's a vintage burgundy, and it's a lot of fun. You speak at Protestant and Catholic high schools and universities. Yeah. You upwards of 72,000 students a year. You speak at um, Crisis Pregnancy Center fundraising banquets. Yeah. I follow you on Facebook, so I see that you are constantly traveling everywhere. You have met with politicians. You have worked with politicians. Uh, something that I didn't know until this afternoon when we were having lunch is that you worked on a recent presidential campaign. Could you talk about that for just briefly, for a moment? Yeah, I advised Hillary Clinton. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> if only. Yeah, really. Um, I did work on the Marco Rubio campaign for, for president, and um, they approached me. And uh, so did Ted Cruz. But once Ted Cruz's people found out it was working for Marco, that was the end of that scenario. Um, but I, I didn't talk to Marco, you know, face to face. I did submit some written uh, guidelines on how to approach the issue. He did tweet out a thanks to me for an article I had written on the issue, which was nice. But um, I, I didn't work with him face to face. I wasn't sitting down with him, you know, saying you need to say this, this, and this, but more in a general sense. And then I got invited to join his uh, bioethics advisory team, which I did, in fact, do. But that by that time, we only had another six weeks before Trump had run away with uh, the nomination, basically. So. You also had an opportunity to get the ear of President Trump through an advisor, right? Yes, but very, again, very indirectly. I'm not calling up, hey, Don, how you doing? Okay, so just so we're clear here. Um, I got asked if you had a sentence you could give the president-elect or the, the presidential candidate at the time on what to say on abortion, what should it be? And through this campaign worker, I said, here's what you need to tell Mr. Trump. When it comes to abortion, he needs to say one thing and one thing only. Say it, rinse, repeat, ad infinitum. Here's what you say. I oppose abortion because it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Stop. Don't defend it. Don't explain it. Just state it. When you're not skilled at defending a position, you need to state your view rather than explain it. And that view conveys the moral truth of the pro-life position. I wish all politicians who are pro-life would say that, and then we'd have consistent messaging on the issue. It is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. That's why I'm pro-life. That's what you say. And anything else, you're going to get thrown back at you. Remember, 
you have a soundbite. You got six seconds to say something that's going to make the evening news. That's your soundbite in that, in that environment. So that's what I, I said. So with all of that experience and everything that you've done with politicians and people all across the country, uh, you have been involved in the work of making the co- uh, pro-life case for almost half as long as Roe versus Wade has been the law of the land. Yeah. Roughly? Yeah. What is the state of the pro-life movement in our country? Is it strong? Is it weak? What are the chances that we will see in our lifetime an end to abortion? The good news is the issue is coming back to the states in some measure. The federal courts are signaling that they're going to release their grip on the issue. Again, what Roe v. Wade did is the federal courts told the executive and legislative branches of government, you have no say on this issue. That's why when people say to me, oh, I, I'm pro-choice because I want the gov- I don't want the government involved in my personal business. When you say you don't want the government involved, do you mean the federal courts too? Because they totally co-opted the issue. They took it away from you and I. We have no voice on the issue. Okay? What's happening now is with signaling through what, what we're seeing at the lower federal court levels, thanks to Trump appointees, and what I think is going to happen next summer, I think next summer you're likely to see a pretty substantial case that I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm not so sure it's going to overturn Roe v. Wade, but I think it's essentially going to gut it to the point where the states are going to be able to legislate with a great deal of freedom. Are you free to talk about what that case is, where it's going, who's bringing it up? Um, there's actually uh, several that, that will do this. You've got the Georgia heartbeat uh, legislation. You've got the Missouri legislation that was passed. You've got Alabama's uh, legislation, uh, Louisiana. You've got uh, Ohio's heartbeat bill. All these are going up to SCOTUS. And I think what the Supreme Court is going to try to do is come up with one of those cases that will speak to all of them and craft a decision. I could be mistaken, but that's that's what I'm seeing. So that's good news. Um, bad news, abortion is almost completely off the table when it comes to Christian conferences. Look at the major Christian conferences that go on right now. Look at Passion in Atlanta. They will raise millions of dollars for sex trafficking. That's a good cause, by the way. And yet the word abortion is hardly mentioned, and no sessions are are generated to equip the students attending to make a case for the pro-life view. If you knew what we had to fight to get into these schools, what we had to go through to get in front of 72,000 students a year on the pro-life issue, you would be amazed. And we're talking about Catholic and Protestant schools that are allegedly with us. Then you've got groups like Urbana uh, that was at one time a great evangelistic conference. And they publicly chide pro-lifers for being narrow-minded and and not caring about real compassion in real people. In other words, they're basically saying the unborn don't count as real people. And they allow a Black Lives Matter speaker to throw pro-lifers under the bus, and they not only don't apologize for it, they justify justify it, and they won't let a pro-life speaker have a prime speaking slot. So we've got some real obstacles in front of us. Pro-life teaching is dead on arrival in many Christian institutions, which is why I'm thankful for you that you are willing to put it front and center here in this church. So that's the good news, bad news scenario. Uh, politically, what do I think is going to happen? Well, I'll 
I'll just go out on a limb here. If President Trump is reelected, and if the Republicans keep the Senate, the federal courts in this nation could be fundamentally changed for the good for decades to come. If he is not reelected, we have still managed to put a stop to a lot of stuff given the number of judges he has put in place. But I do not believe we will see um, Roe v. Wade overturned without another appointment at, at the uh, Supreme Court level and another hundred or so federal judges appointed as you see more and more leftist judges retire. So this election matters. Uh, I'm not here to endorse a candidate. I'm just speaking. You ask me what I see. And um, how how frank am I allowed to be in these conversations? I'm pretty frank. So okay. You, you, All right. Yeah, <laughs> I do not speak for the church right now. I do not speak for my organization. I'm giving you my opinion as an individual. Okay. The Democrat Party is a huge obstacle to the lives of the unborn. It's a party dedicated to the proposition that an entire class of human beings can be set aside to be killed. I don't know how to say it other than say it. If that party is not defeated at the polls, unborn children die. I'm just saying it. So students, if you're 18 and you're going to be coming up on a chance to vote, get registered. Uh, God cares about politics. Now, politics does not save people eternally. Let's be clear about that. And by the way, I'm not suggesting the Republicans always do things good. They leave me disappointed a lot. However, just because politics isn't everything doesn't mean it isn't anything. And it also means that God cares about how we engage politically, because God cares about all of his creation, and the Christian worldview applies to all of life, not just segmented parts of it. And so our political involvement matters. And uh, the, hit, the story of the pro-life movement is going to ride on to the extent the Democrat Party suffers defeat at the polls. And we are not going to have the ability to marshal large numbers of people to vote pro-life if our churches and Christian conferences are covering up the issue, which is what we're facing. The other option that we have as Christians is the Republican Party, of which I happen to be a voting member. Yep. And the Republican Party has oftentimes worn uh, our jersey but scored points yep. for the other team. Yes. For so the first two years of President Trump's presidency, they controlled the House and the Senate and the White yep. House, and yet we continue to fund Planned Parenthood yep. to the tune of half a billion dollars every year, uh, $50 million or $500 million. Five hundred million, I think. Uh, Five hundred million. Five hundred million dollars yeah. every year. They did nothing to move the needle on that issue. That's right. And yet, would any of us ever have thought that we would have heard a president in our lifetime say in a State of the Union address that abortion was the execution of innocent babies? Those are the yep. words he used, quote yep. unquote, yep. in the State of the Union address. Yep. Ronald Reagan. Everyone right. salute Ronald Reagan. <laughs> right. He he never Man. used language like that. Yeah. He even came up with exceptions in the case of rape and incest. Mm -hmm in his classic defense, which he wrote um, right. while president of the United States. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, it's an odd mixture that we have where we have somebody in the White House of that political party who is willing to, to use language like that, and yet the, the party that was in control for two years didn't seem to move the needle on it at all. Yeah. 
there's no doubt the first two years of Trump's presidency were a, a disappointment that way. Oftentimes, we are faced with a decision that kind of goes like this. We're either going to choose a first-class arsonist or a second-class fireman. Uh, one political party is a first-class arsonist when it comes to the lives of the unborn. The other doesn't do a very good job protecting them, but the alternative is so bad, we do our best to help them do better. So uh, that's where I land on this. Um, again, I'm not telling you how to vote. Well, yeah, I am. But anyway. <laughs> how many debates have you done with pro-life activists and proponents? I've never debated, uh, never debated a pro-life activist, but I have yeah. debated a lot of you abortion choice activists. The pro-choice. Yes. I guess how many debates have you done with pro-choicers? I'm going to say 20, 25 to 28. 28 different people? No, no. Uh, I started off debating Eddie Tabosh, who's the president of the Council for Secular Humanism in California, ACLU attorney. Uh, and he and I would go to local junior colleges and debate in front of psychology classes and other forms that we could find. And Eddie would always agree to debate. He'd always draw a crowd, and I would get a chance to get the pro-life view out. We were friends. He's just wrong, but we were friends. A Jewish guy whose parents survived the Holocaust, but bragged that his greatest single feat on earth was talking his father out of God's existence on his father's deathbed. He's an atheist. Uh, we're friends, but he's a mixed-up guy. Uh, then I debated Catherine Colbert, who argued the Thornburg decision in front of the Supreme Court in 1986. And more, more recently, my debate opponent is Nadine Strawson, former president of the ACLU. Again, I consider her a friend. And that may strike some of you as odd, but can I say a, a couple of words about that? Nadine Strawson is no more lost in her sins than I was in mine before God found me. So let's not you know, shut people off just because they're in sin. Yeah, that, that was all of us. Uh, secondly, she draws a crowd and I get to talk to them. Why wouldn't I want that deal? Um, so we're friends. She's mistaken. But we have debated at Arizona State, Malone University, Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, College of William and Mary, Westmont College, uh, Wayne State University, in Detroit, and I mean, I'm losing track of all the schools, but those are a handful. In fact, you, if you're buying the, the Life is Best DVD series tonight, along with the book Stand for Life that we got back there, we're throwing in for free a copy of the debate I did with Nadine at Wayne State University. You can actually watch the debate. Um, so those are some of the people that I have debated. What is your relationship with her? Let's single out her for a second. Behind the scenes. Cordial? Very cordial. We'll, we'll often have dinner before the event. She'll ask how my kids are doing. Um, very friendly. And our debates are not attacking of each other personally. They're spirited, but it's spirited on the content, not personal attacks on each other. Tell me what you told me about a ride with her one time. I got to share the gospel with Nadine once, very briefly. We had debated at Malone University in Ohio, Akron, Ohio, and we both had early morning flights out of Cleveland the next morning. And the university said, listen, we got a limo that will whisk you guys back to your respective hotels at near the airport. Would you mind sharing the car? Oh, yeah, that's fine. We're friends. No problem. So I had a, a bag of cookies, hot chocolate chip cookies, that uh, was given me by the host that housed me that night. And it was one of the dorms there on campus. And I jumped in the limo, gave Nadine a couple of the cookies, and she's gone, man, these are really good, thank you. And we were chatting, 
And then between bites of the cookies, she looked at me and said, now, you really believe this Christian thing, don't you? I mean, you don't think it's just good that it makes your life better. You think it actually is true, right? By the way, that's a great question. I said, yes, Nadine, I do believe it's true. I believe it is a historical truth that God raised Jesus of Nazareth from Nazareth from the dead after he died and atoned for our sins, that God raised him from the dead, and that the evidence for that resurrection is overwhelming. She kind of just paused and thought about it and said, that, that's really interesting. That, that's, that's interesting. And she thanked me, and that kind of just, it, it ended at that point. But I'm hoping it was a pebble. Um, you know, you could pick it apart and say, well, you didn't get the full gospel in there. I didn't have an opportunity to do much more. We're responsible to take advantage of what God gives us in terms of opportunities. And that was my moment, so I, I took what I could. Have you met with her or debated her since then? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. At least six or seven times. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, when was the last time you debated her? And do you have any plans to debate her again? 2016, and we're drumming up another debate for possibly 2020, late November, uh, down in Texas. That's in the works. When you debate somebody multiple times, how has how does does her arguments develop? Does she take what it is that you respond to, the arguments that you make, and and refine hers, or try and find weaknesses in your presentation? I I have not found her to make a lot of changes to her presentation in general in terms of addressing my case. But I will say this to any of you that have aspirations to do debates, and I hope some of you students do, by the way. Never rest on your laurels when it comes to a debate. So when I do a debate, it is a huge weight on me. The six months leading up to it, uh, I am prepping, I'm preparing, and I don't care if I've debated you ten times before. You never assume it's going to be a walk in the park. Debates are minefields, and you need to prep for them. You need to study. The old saying, the more you sweat in training, the less you bleed in battle. So I take debate prep very seriously, and um, you'll see that if you watch that debate DVD, it comes out. But that is, when you see me prepared in that debate, which you will, uh, that's a ton of hours spent making sure I've got things tight. And what's interesting, I'll let you in on a little secret. During the debate, it looks like I'm taking notes. I'm not taking notes. I had written my opening speech, my rebuttal speech, and my closing speech a month before that debate. I thought, that's how prepared I was. I knew where she was going to go. And so when she was making statements, I'm just checking off the statements that I know are coming. Uh, that's what you have to do. That's the level of prep you need to put into this. That's what William Lane Craig does when he debates atheists. Um, and, and I think that's how we bring glory to God because it shows that Christians are thoughtful, that we are not just, you know, showing up and being careless. We're actually taking the time to do our homework, and and I pray that it brings God glory when I do debates. I watched one of your debates. I think it's on YouTube with Nadine Strauss. I'm not sure if it's the one that's on DVD back there. Yeah. But you'll notice when you watch that that she will get up and she will make certain arguments, and you're there ready, and she will she will cite a case law or an mm-hmm. embryology textbook or yeah. um, an article or some authoritative source, and she will kind of summarize it or quote part of it, and then immediately you will, when it comes time for your rebuttal, Scott will pull out a piece of paper and say, well, actually the case law is so-and-so versus such-and-such from 
this court case, and he begins to cite it or or com- completely cite the context of what she's describing. Does the same thing with an embryology textbook or a philosophy mm-hmm. textbook. She mm-hmm. will cite something out of context. Scott already knows what she's going to do, and so he takes what she was preparing and then uses her own words and her own sources to refute what it is that she had just presented. Yeah, and by the way, uh, I do think Nadine, uh, I'm not, I don't want to suggest that she's not intelligent. She's a very intelligent woman. And uh, by the way, very gracious to pro-life students. She'll go meet with the pro-life students if they want to meet with her, and she'll give them the time of day and talk to them, and she actually appreciates the pro-life students because they'll participate in a debate while the abortion choice students won't. So it's it's nice in that regard. But I do think that preparation is huge, and that's what you have to do when you do these debates. And that's why I don't do them uh, all the time, because of the enormous work you have to put in to get ready for this. I offered Scott to arrange a debate here as part of our conference, and he turned me down for that very reason. He said he just didn't have time to do it, which is, is good. You can see the debate on the YouTube yep. or the DVD, which is, which is excellent. Yep. Um, Beings that you are touching, the, the nerve that it seems to be at the center of our cultural debate nowadays, what type of negative feedback do you get from people that, whose toes you step on, who, whose sacred cow you are throwing to the grinder when you do what you do? Do you get death threats? Do you get hate emails? Do you get a lot of correspondence like that? Do you have people who threaten your life at all? I don't. Um, I, I have had people protest events I've been at. Uh, I can only think of one time I had what I would consider a somewhat veiled harm threat. Uh, and that was at the University of Nebraska a, a dozen years ago. But what normally happens is the other side tries to shut down the event, uh, either with a heckler's veto or by causing disruption at UC Berkeley when I'm debating Malcolm Potts, for example. But it, it's not direct threats. What is a threat, and, and it's, it's a problem. Um, we are more and more encountering pro-lifers who try to shut down effective pro-life presentations. They don't like the visuals that I showed you tonight. And they will say things like this. They'll, they'll want me to come to their event, and they'll say, unlike you, they, they say things like, well, we prayed about it, and we didn't feel a peace about talking about abortion directly, or we felt that the Lord was telling us this wasn't the thing to do. Well, that's funny because I was feeling he told me it was. You know, I mean, now where are we, right? Um, but people love to invoke God rather than look at evidence, rather than explore what might be effective. And I'm almost tempted to write an article entitled How the Spirit is Killing the Pro-Life Movement because we've got a large group of Christians now that think they're hearing directly from God and trying to reframe our messaging in ways that are harmful to our cause. And that is a a, a very frustrating thing to me. And I understand pro-abortionists. I know why they're the way they are. But it's interesting. Feminist Naomi Wolf, who supports abortion, is more honest on abortion than some pro-life leaders that we work with, who try to cover up the injustice of abortion, No social reform movement has ever succeeded where its activists sought to cover up the injustice that was going on. Uh, you got to expose it. This is what we're told to do in Ephesians. Don't cover evil deeds, expose them. Well, uh, we have Christians that are hearing from God in places of influence 
and they're saying, no, we, we don't want to show that video. We, we don't think our people can handle it. We don't think our people can handle a truthful discussion on abortion. Everybody says this, and everybody's wrong. And feminist Naomi Wolf says the following about that video you just saw, the pictures you saw in there. She says, if the pictures are true, then we ought to admit them as evidence in the Socratic quest for truth. And if we say women are too inherently weak to view a choice they're about to make, well, then we're condescending to the women. We're basically saying they're too weak to handle the truth. What kind of apologetic is that? So we have actually pro-abortion feminists willing to be more honest about the pictures than some pro-life Christian leaders, which is a very big threat to what we're trying to accomplish and a very frustrating point for me. Are you seeing headway in the advance of the pro-life messaging, speaking to upwards of 72,000 students a year? Are you, do you see the next generation coming up being more pro-life? Uh, and, and do you see that we're beginning to win the messaging issue? Pro-life messaging right now is in shambles, and I'm going to tell you why. Pro-lifers are buying the premise of our critic critics that if we're pro-life, we have to take on a whole list of responsibilities beyond abortion. And they're listening to voices, even from conservative leaders, who are saying, if we're going to be pro-life, we need to take on the opiate crisis, we need to take on the refugee crisis, we need to take on immigration reform, we need to take on poverty, we need to take on equitable work conditions, and the list goes on and on and on. And instead of challenging our critics, a lot of our own leaders are buying the premise that we now have to expand what it means to be pro-life. The leading crisis pregnancy center organization, their leader has coined a phrase called pro-abundant life. And here's what he says we have to do if we're truly pro-life. He says we need to move from pro-life to pro-abundant life. Here's what he says that means. We need to, if we're a pro-life organization, programmatically, and I'm using his words here, programmatically use our resources to do evangelism, marriage repair, family repair, family health between parents and, and, and kids, uh, immigration, uh, helping mothers choose wisely jobs and lifestyle choices, and the list goes on and on. Now, I want you to think about your average pro-life group. Are they rich or poor? They're already flat broke, and now we're giving them a job description that's going to absolutely bankrupt them? Uh, no. Keep the main thing the main thing. Our job is to stop abortion. That's the major crisis in front of us. Now, as a Christian, we'll care about a lot of issues. I care about a lot of issues. But the organizational objectives of the pro-life movement need to be singular. We're out to save unborn lives. That's what we're about. We can't take on everything. Uh, Frederick the Great said, he who fights everywhere fights nowhere. Uh, imagine someone saying to the American Cancer Society, you have no right to call yourself a medical organization when you're only fighting one disease, not many. What are you doing about heart attacks? What are you doing about lupus? What are you doing about diabetes, huh? Or nobody would go to a Christian daycare center in the inner city and say, what are you doing? You're only open two hours a week or two hours a day after school, weekdays. Why aren't you open 24-7? What are you doing about gang violence? What are you doing about older kids? No, nobody would do that. They only attack pro-lifers for these things. And I'm telling you, men and women, don't fall for it. Here's what you do. You look your critics in the eye and you say, how does it follow that because I oppose the intentional killing of an innocent human being, I'm responsible to fix everything wrong with society? 
They need to answer that question. Nobody else gets saddled with that, only us. So I keep the main thing the main thing. I know I'm preaching here. I probably went far beyond what you were asking. But um, that's a real concern right now. And our messaging needs to be what it was a moment ago. Abortion is wrong because it intentionally kills an innocent human being. By the time this conference is over, you will know how to defend that scientifically, defend it philosophically, and answer objections to it. That's our message. That's how we keep the main thing the main thing. Our time is up, but I have one more question. It wasn't on my list of questions that I sent to you, but we did discuss this over lunch. Locally, we have an AHA chapter, Abolish Human Abortion. Mm. Um, Anytime you get together a group of people that's a couple hundred uh, people big, they're there with their signs, is sometimes in people's faces being... Uh, very bold and very abrupt. They seem to be opposed to any kind of incremental approach to limiting abortion or to stopping abortion. They want it abolished right now. What is your, what have been some of your, what is your assessment of the AHA movement in the past and currently? And what interactions have you had with leadership and people in the AHA movement? How have they responded to your approach to making the pro-life case? The short answer is they don't like me. And I don't much care for them. That's the short answer. I think they're deeply problematic, uh, not just in their philosophical approach, but the people I've talked to within that movement are not grounded in local churches. They are not doing their work within uh, the context of a Christian community, and it shows in their behavior. Uh, I also think they're very wrong on saying pro-lifers are compromised because they work incrementally. No, we're not. There's a difference between a settled compromise and doing the greatest good you can given the political reality in front of you. So what Christians are responsible to do is to limit the evil and promote the good insofar as possible given current election realities. And that means right now we're not going to get everything we want. So we're going to vote to limit the evil as much as we can. That is not compromise. So let me give you an example that might uh, help here. Suppose you have a Middle Eastern uh, parliamentarian, we'll call him Ahmad. Ahmad is a parliamentarian in a rogue Arab Islamic country that sells children into sex slavery. Fathers will take their seven-year-old daughters and sell them off to other men for 10 years uh, to be sex slaves to these older men, and then... When the child turns 17, uh, the father will pay for corrective surgery to make the, the child look like she's a virgin and then sell her off to another man in marriage. And this goes on in that country, all right? Imagine Ahmad has the votes in the parliament to stop 90% of that because he has the votes to stop that practice being done with all girls that are citizens of that country. But he doesn't have the votes to do it for non-citizens of that country who reside within its borders. He's ready to get this bill passed. There's an auction coming up a month from now on a Saturday where 20,000 girls are going to be sold into slavery. But if Ahmad can get this bill signed... 90% of them will walk forever free. On the eve of the vote, one of his own parliamentarians says, I've been thinking about this, and I've been talking with a few of my colleagues. 
we're compromising here. It's wrong for us to save only 90%. We need to save all of them or we're compromising. And therefore, we're withdrawing our support from this bill because you have a compromised position. Wait a minute. Who's doing the compromising? Ahmad or the other side that has given up 90% of what it had before? And as a result of that, the bill fails. And that sun, or that Saturday, a month later, 20,000 young girls have new homes and new masters. We call that a moral improvement? You and I are powerless to decide which lives live and which die. When you vote for incremental legislation, you're not deciding which babies get to get killed. The Supreme Court has already decided no children have a right to life before they're born. That decision was already made. The one doing the compromise is the one giving up ground. Who's giving up ground in the current uh, scenario here? The pro-lifer who wins incremental gains or the other side that is giving up territory? They're the ones giving up territory. They're the ones having to compromise. We're actually advancing our cause here. Now, if your position is that you don't want to protect certain children and you want it to be the permanent law of the land that babies conceived through rape get killed, for example, then you would have a morally compromised position. But if you don't have the votes to protect all of them, but you do have the votes to protect some, by golly, do the greatest moral good you can given what you have to work with. And I think AHA does a very bad disservice not understanding that point and laying guilt trips on Christians who vote to limit the evil in so far as possible. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.